Perhaps the most controversial topic of discussion in our day revolves around truth. Opinions often blur the lines of an objective truth. Streaming platforms, social media, and other public forums allow individuals to project their truths upon the masses like never before. In the midst of woke, cancel culture, religious freedoms, political liberties, and social injustice, we attempt to search for and reveal the truth. This is Truth Revival. And now, the continuation of Truth Revival. But Mike's, Mike was talking about um, men of God. You sh- a man of God should not be that guy that's out chasing skirts. You know, he shouldn't be that flirt. He shouldn't be that guy that everybody knows that, you know, he's touchy-feely. Um, I hate to be throwing shade right now, but, uh, you know, Joe Biden, our president, how many... Uh, pictures are their own line of joe biden being close to little girls and just doing creepy stuff you know like that that should not be said of the man of god and and people people will there's oversight or you know they'll, they'll look over it because he well he's the president and yeah he's doing creepy stuff to little girls but you know i mean that just, he's he's a democratic president so we're not going to judge the the preacher shouldn't be like that anyway your pastor shouldn't be like that anyway, or that shouldn't be the kind of guy that you are. You know uh, that guy that's real handsy at work. Uh, you know, and hey, he's been he's been married one time. He's he's still married to his wife, but I don't. You know, I I hate that we we take that first guideline. Um, I mean, I don't know if these are requirements. Or guidelines, because I don't know any man who meets all of these requirements in First Timothy chapter number three, and uh, also in in Titus. I don't know anybody who meets all of them. I yeah. like to I like to refer to them as a code of ethics. Okay, okay, because really is what they are. There is a code of ethics for bishops or pastors, and there's a code of ethics for deacons and elders and elders. Yeah. Well, uh, elder is the same thing as a as a, as a as a bishop as a sentiment. So you've got you got pastors. It can be referred to as elders, pastors, shepherds, um, overseers. Those are all the same term. And then you have deacons. Um, and there's a code of ethics for each of them, just like there's a code of ethics for doctors and a code of ethics for nurses. And the code of ethics for nurses isn't as stringent or rigid as or as detailed as the code of ethics for doctors are. Okay. Um, but it's a code of ethics, how a person is supposed to behave and conduct himself, okay? Um, but I think I think we have to make a division here, Roman, before we get started on it. We, we got to talk about before salvation and after salvation. Which is what Paul, one thing Paul okay. alluded to. Because there's, you know, there's the situation before salvation and the situation after salvation. Okay. Can, can something that happened to somebody before they were saved be held against them after they're saved? No. And disqualify them for service. Shouldn't be. No. I don't I don't feel because that would totally limit his forgiveness. But that's what we do. What what about Mike if um like in, in my situation, for instance, where I got saved at seven and I was living for God to my teenage years and then in my twenties, you know, I, I didn't live for God at all. Uh and that's during the time I got married. And then I got divorced, still wasn't living for God until years later. Right. Well, all I can what I can say for absolute certainty is everything that happened before you gave your heart to Christ was covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen. It was wiped away. Right. It, it, it's as far as the east is from the west. Right. And let me read what Paul writes. Paul writes in First Timothy chapter one, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm in verse twelve, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. In other words, I didn't qualify. I didn't meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 before I was saved, okay? I mean, you read the list. Was he blameless? Was he sober? Was he given to hospitality? Was he... Uh, was he not a brawl? I mean, this was a guy that was literally hauling people to jail and having mm-hmm. people stoned to death, okay? So... By his own confession, he's saying, before my salvation, I did not meet this code of ethics 
that I'm going to lay out for you two chapters from now, okay? Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious and obtained, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, before I was saved, this is what I was guilty of, okay? Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus, which is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. Yeah. Amen. Praise God. And he goes on to say, how be it for this cause? This is why God chose me, Paul's saying. Even though I was this evil, wicked, you know, basically a serial killer, a mass murderer. Pretty much, yeah. Okay. This is why God picked me. He said, how be it for this cause, I obtained mercy, that in me first Christ Jesus might show forth all long suffering for a what? For a pattern. Mm. For a pattern. To set an example for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, if that isn't as conclusive evidence as you could ever receive that what happens prior to your salvation cannot be held against you, then how in the world did Paul become an apostle, okay, and a bishop, and a leader of churches, and a leader of pastors? How would God ever choose him? Because he doesn't meet the criteria laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Mm. So if if what happened prior to your salvation is not covered by the blood of Jesus, then we God made a mistake by choosing Paul. Really? And God can't make mistakes. He's perfect. That's true. So I think there is no doubt whatsoever that whatever happened to a man before he was saved cannot be held against him. Okay? That it is covered by the blood of Jesus. Thank God for that. I'm about to shout. Okay. And does not have anything to do with their qualifications to be to serve in ministry. Now, now you got to ask, well, what about after you're saved? Okay. All right. Now that's the question, right? Here we go. Well, what we've about got, we've got a pattern we got to go by, right? Yeah. <laughs> what about it, what happens after you're saved? Can those things be held against you? Okay. Well, absolutely. There's a code of ethics, and if you violate that code of ethics, that you have to be dealt with. Yeah. But does that mean if you break one of the codes in this ethics that you're disqualified automatically from serving? If if you violate one of these things on this list, one one time I happen to not be hospitable to people. You know, I I just maybe I was sick, didn't feel good, and I just was not nice and didn't wasn't hospitable. Oh, my goodness, does that now mean that I have to step down as a pastor because I failed to be hospitable on one occasion? Okay? It says I have to be given to hospitality. What if What if I have an opportunity to teach somewhere, and I just, I'm busy, and I got something else going on, and I don't do it? Well, was I apt to teach, or did I violate this code of ethics? Mm. Do I have to step down? Okay? Well, again, I think we go back to God's word. And I think we God gave us an example. What happened to Peter? Remember when Peter went to Antioch? Okay? What was he doing? He was eating with everybody in Antioch, whether you were a Jew or a Christian, whether you were a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian. Right. He was sitting and eating with them. There were no restrictions on what food they were eating. There was none of that stuff, right? Well, then what happened? Some Christian Jews from Jerusalem came to check out what was going on in Antioch. <laughs> yep. And what did they do? They started right, 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 yep. right. And what did Peter do? Peter chose to separate himself from yep. the Gentile Christians and started putting himself back under the law and following the dietary requirements of the Jews right. to, to pacify the Jewish Christians. Yeah. What was he about to do? He was about to split the church. The church was going to split right open, and we're going to now have a a Gentile Gentile Christian church and a Jewish Christian church. And God did not want his church split. He wants his church in unity. So what did he do? He had Paul stand up in front of everybody and rebuke Peter. Called him out. Why? 
Peter was violating the code of ethics. He was no longer acting in a blameless manner. He was now causing division and contention within the church. And he was going to split the church. He wasn't at that point qualified to serve as a pastor, as a bishop. He was breaking the code of ethics. So what did Peter, what did Paul do? He confronted him. In other words, he rebuked him, confronted him. And when Peter repented, now was after when he rebuked Peter, did he say, you must step down. You're no longer an apostle. Okay. God's done with you. Is that what happened? No, no, absolutely not. We know Peter repented and God was able to continue to use him. Amen. Because he wrote first, second Peter. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and went on and, and helped establish, uh, served in the church at Rome and da, da, da. So, you know, he continued to minister. He continued to be a, a, a servant of Christ. But yet when he violated the code of ethics, somebody had to stand up and rebuke him so that he could repent, get right with God, and then be able to continue his ministry. But it didn't disqualify him. It didn't automatically say, now you must step down because you broke one of these codes of ethics. And I think that's what this is. It serves as a code of ethics that we are to be held to. If we violate them, we are to be rebuked. We are to be confronted. And if we truly repent, okay, and get right with God, I don't believe it disqualifies us from, from, from service, from ministry. Amen. I agree with that because I've been rebuked two or three times and I've always, and I've said this over and over. If, if the Lord sends somebody to rebuke you, he really loves you and he really wants you on his team because if people, if he don't send somebody to rebuke you, you just keep on acting foolish and foolish till eventually that foolishness will get you totally off track, totally off track. But can you imagine, um, being a fresh believer, when I when I read this, when I first became born again and I read this, I thought, my Lord. Because we don't really, I feel like, you know, where the Bible says to study to show yourself approved, I feel like what you orated in the first uh, podcast of this was unreal. That you that, That's how we need to dig and that's how we need to teach it because we take this thing for face value. And, and now let's be honest, boys, this face value is just letters on a page. Unless the power of the Holy Ghost awakens you to where you can dig in it like you have and, and see exactly what it means. Like like this past month at church, I've been preaching on Wednesday nights, and the Lord has just opened my eyes to his word and what it's doing. And the same way with this, I never really understood the depth of this uh, physical fornication and spiritual fornication. I didn't even know it meant that. But if I'd have took time to really dig into it, I would have known it. And we got to take time to dig in that and really know it and teach our people because most of this congregation comes in here and takes this thing for black and white letters on a page. But, man, there's life in this thing. And and it's open and free to to take us into that holy of holies to to worship him and to extol who he is. And that's what he's called us to do. And and we put so much face on, hey, his wife left him or he's doing this or he's doing that. Let's dig into the root. What really happened? Was there fornication physically? Was there fornication spiritually? Because let's be honest, we've all been in a household at some point in time when either our spouse or ourselves was heck bent. We don't want to. We don't want to go to church today. We don't want to follow God today. I'm over who He is. I'm sick of this. I want to do what I want. And your life's a living hell because they're not obeying or you're not obeying, and you're just about ready to punch each other in the mouth, kick the door down, and walk away. But nobody wants to admit that. I will. No, that just happens. <laughs> Preach, brother. Just keep on preaching, brother. We've all been there, you know. And and I mean, Lord, guys, um, me and Corey, we've we've been together now for going on eighteen years, and it hasn't been easy. You know, we were equally yoked. We both are, you know, have lived for the Lord for a very long time. Got saved at a young age, raised in church. But we've had to give our marriage to the Lord, and it's a it's a struggle all the time, and and I've I've discovered that when my marriage is struggling, it's usually because of my own heart, you know. Yeah, and that's true. But but on the other side, it can also be from her, you know. And we've got to love one another. We've got to grow in, in grace and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has a you know it it's it's not my marriage; it's God's marriage. God put us together. 
let what what God put together, let them put us under. There's been plenty of times I've wanted to walk away. Yeah. And it is so challenging, gentlemen. I'm telling you, it's been, but, but you know what? God's grace is sufficient. And I'm so thankful for my wife. I love her. Darby, was you going to say something? You going to say something over there? No, I'm just agreeing with what Paul was saying that, you know, a lot of times we look to, like to look at that. Uh, that happens in other people's lives, not my own. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, like when you was talking about first Timothy there, you really go through that. It's like, wait, why do we pick the divorce so much? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can be, I can minister to people if I'm a former addict. I can't if I'm divorced. But, but Darby, the, you know, the saddest thing about all that, Divorce is not even mentioned in here. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like that's the yeah. that's the that's the way we look that, at that's it. That's the Mike. saddest thing. Yes, the word divorce is not even mentioned here. Go ahead and elaborate on that, Mike. Okay, this is good. This is great. This right here is going to set you free. Oh, I promise yes. you. Here, here we, we go. go. Okay. So, so now if we agree that this is a code of ethics, now we need to look at what do the what do the codes say? Okay. Yeah. What does the code say? I mean, for example, one of the codes says not given to wine. Now, you're going to say, okay, does that mean if I drink any wine, I can't be a bishop? Well, if you took it literally without any spiritual eyes or without rightly discerning the Word of God, in other words, without applying all the other scriptures, if you take one scripture out of context without looking at it among all the other scriptures, then you can come up with a false doctrine, right? The Bible never contradicts itself. There's never going to be a scripture here that's going to contradict another scripture somewhere else. Right. So your interpretation of scripture must harmonize the whole countenance of the word of God, right? You can't just isolate one verse. Because remember, what did Paul tell Timothy to do? He said, stop drinking water and instead have a glass of wine every day for your stomach's sake. Yeah. Now, Timothy was the bishop of, of Ephesus. So... But he says not given to wine. So did he now disqualify Timothy from being the pastor of the church of Ephesus because he told him for his stomach's sake to drink a glass of wine, quit drinking the water? Mm, good point. So you have to look at all the scripture and look at, so what do these code of ethics mean? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the one that everybody gets hung up on. And, and the Mike, one- Mike, let me also say this right here. There are There will be people, and I think we kind of talked about this in one of our other podcasts, about people who view... They'll say, well, there's so many contradictions in Scripture. But the Bible also tells us to exercise discernment mm-hmm. and rightly dividing the word of truth. You mm-hmm. know, Now, Paul, taking that for face value, it does seem like a contradiction. But when we read it in context and what Paul's talking about, when he says given to much mind, he's talking about an addict. Right. He's talking yeah. about having alcoholism abusing it abusing it being a problem in your life and guys let's all be real we all know those people who they just they just drink way too much sure sure but you know they didn't have nyquil back then (laughs) yeah or they didn't have you know what they had antibiotics they had (laughs) yeah they had they had wine and there were there were levels of the wine there was a medicinal type of wine that they would use that was a little bit, had a little bit stronger alcohol content in it, you know, but it, it helped with the discomfort, you know. And so Paul basically is right there saying, you know, use that as medicine, but don't abuse the medicine. Exactly. Right? So what's the code of ethics? The code of ethics is that a, a bishop is not going to be one that abuses alcohol. Right. Okay. He's not going to be a drunk. He doesn't need to be walking out of the store <laughs> yeah. with the 12 pack. Exactly. He's not, he's not yeah. going to be one that, <laughs> used, that abuses alcohol. Okay. He's not going to be one that ever allows his mind not to be sober mm-hmm. under the control of Christ. That's the standard. Okay. Uh, it doesn't say that you can never drink alcohol, period. It says right. you're not going to abuse it. Okay. Now, I personally don't touch the stuff. I don't think it does anything good for you. And I mm-hmm. encourage others to do the same. But. That's the, the code of ethics. But the one everybody hangs up on is this husband of one wife phrase. Yes. Okay. Now, in the Greek language, that's three words. Okay. Um, it is the words mios, which is the number one. Gunikos, which is the genitive form of the word woman. Okay. And on um, andara, which is a word that means either man or husband. Okay, it's a male, and it can either refer to a man that's not married or a, a husband that is married. Okay, now let me read a, a definition from somebody who's a whole lot smarter than I am. Doctor Zodiatus 
uh, he has since gone to be with the Lord. He, uh, but he was born on the island of Crete, and he grew up speaking modern-day Greek, but then he became a, a renowned Greek scholar, okay, PhD, all that stuff, and wrote a, a big old lexicon on the Greek New Testament and what these words mean. Now, this is a quote that I'm taking from his Complete Word Study Dictionary that he wrote. He says, what does the expression, the husband of one wife, mean? Referring to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 and 12. He says, the genitive, mios gunikos, which is the one of one wife, it means of one wife, is attributive. It means a husband who pays attention only to his wife and not to others. A one-woman husband. This has nothing to do with having been the husband at any time in the past of a woman other than one's present wife. Okay? Now, he goes on to say in his uh, Hebrew-Greek key study Bible that he wrote, the phrase husband of one wife does not mean that the bishop or the deacon were was never married before, else it would exclude a remarried widower. See 1 Timothy 3.12. Furthermore, it does not mean that in order to become a bishop or a deacon, one must be married. In Romans 7, 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul placed no restrictions upon a widower to remarry. Again, you've got to study the whole countenance of the yes. Word of God, right? The meaning of this phrase is that the bishop or the deacon should not be married to more than one woman simultaneously. In the Greek, mios gunikos, meaning of one woman, would have been better translated a one-woman husband. The total context speaks of the moral conduct of the bishop and the deacon. He should be a man totally dedicated to his wife and not flirtatious. In other words, a bishop is not going to be one out chasing skirts, brother, and, and trying to hook up with other women, okay? Yep. He's going to be before. faithful, yeah. committed, and dedicated to his wife, Okay. Period. That's what the code of ethic is. Well, Mike, I think that's um, something you just brought out. It's something I've always thought before, but you know, you always hear it as related to the divorce term of you know a, a husband of one wife. Well, back then, you know, a lot of uh, husbands had multiple wives. I mean, like Solomon, for instance. You know, what three hundred? She was a bunch. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I've always kind of thought that, but you know, with being taught, especially in this area, that. I, you know, it almost leads you to believe that that's talking about divorce. But yeah. I'm I'm more on the track of a, a, a husband of one wife who didn't have multiple wives. Yeah, at once. Look, if you're going to hold to the state, if you're going to hold to the position that this phrase, the husband of one wife, means you can never be divorced, then it also means that you must also be married. Yes. Okay. You have to be married to be a bishop. If you're going to hold that position, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Right. Now. If if you have to be married to be a bishop, then a hypocrite wrote 13 of the 27 books of our New Testament. Because Paul, when he's writing these letters, tells you that he is not married, that he is single. Now, he doesn't tell you what happened to his wife. He doesn't, he doesn't say that he's a widow or uh, that his wife died. He just says he's without a wife. Yeah. And I believe it's because his wife left him, as we talked about earlier, when he went back to Tarsus as a born-again Christian. But anyway, the point is, he wasn't married. So he would be holding people to a higher standard than he's holding himself, which would make him a hypocrite. Yep. Okay? And I don't believe God would let a hypocrite write 13 of the 27 books of our Bible. No, that's true. Our New Testament. Okay? So that's the problem. Now, also, if if Dr. Zosia's explanation of this phrase is not correct, then uh, if your spouse engages in physical fornication— you either going to have to stay faithful to that un- unfaithful spouse, or you're going to have to step down from the ministry. Those are your two choices. Yeah. In other words, the devil can use the sinful actions of your spouse to destroy your ministry and cause you to not be able to fulfill what God has called you to do. Yeah. Now, you think God gives Satan that kind of power? You think God gives Satan the power to undo a calling he put on your life? They're irrevocable. I don't think so, Roman. Who called you to ministry? Yeah, God. Okay. Is there any force in the universe more powerful than God that should have the power to 
to make you step down from that calling? I mean, I mean, I guess. See, this is something too. You know, I've I've often thought about us disqualifying ourselves, but if God knows the end of a thing before it's beginning, this is a question. You know, and maybe we can answer this. I've often wondered, you know, why does God call us if we're later going to be disqualified by an act or action or sin? Did God make the original mistake in calling us? What what happened there? Um, and, and and I'm just going to go ahead and fast forward here here a little bit. I believe one thing that we don't practice enough of in the modern day church is exercising grace, mercy, and restoration. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think we just think it's a one and done type thing. Yeah, you you committed that act or you you did this thing, and so God's done with you now. It's over. You've ruined everything. Or your spouse, and people think, well, your spouse is not right with God, therefore that disqualifies you. I don't think necessarily that that's the case. I believe we've got to really use discernment. Yes, and, and we need some, we need some wise men and women. Well, to, we first need to assess who's at fault, right? If if your if your wife goes out and had an affair on you, Roman, God forbid that ever happened. But if she did that, did, did were you at fault? Did you cause her to do that? Did you did you live your life and did you deny her in the bedroom to where her needs were not being met? So she felt she had nowhere else, no nothing else to do. You see what I'm saying? Or did, or you know like. Ignore her. Yeah. Because I know. Were you times, abusive to her or emotionally or physically abusive to her? Yeah. Giving her uh, Did you attention. Give her, yeah. Are you at fault? But if you were being a godly man, living your life the best you could according to the word of God and serving him and trying to be the best husband you could be, and she chose on her own will to go do that, who's committed to sin? Mm-hmm. Okay. She has committed that sin. You can't think for her. You can't make her do the right thing. And she's chosen to commit that sin. Now, how in the world should we allow the sin of someone else to disqualify you from something God has called you to do when you've not done anything wrong? Because we do uh, we put roadblocks in front of ourselves a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Well, listen to what the Scripture says, boys. Romans eleven twenty nine: For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He calls you, you're called. That's my job. Now, if you are the one that's done wrong, then you need to repent. And you're the one that needs to get, if you violated this code of ethics, then you need to be dealt with, right? But if you truly repent, I don't believe that that you're, that you're permanently disqualified, okay? I agree with that. Now, you might need to step down from your ministry to fix the problem and yes. focus on fixing the problem for a period of time. But if you truly fix that problem and repent, I don't believe that means you're permanently disqualified. You can no longer be used of God. Look, how do I know that? What happened to old Timothy? On Paul's first missionary journey, what happened? I mean, Mark. What happened to Mark? Oh, he had to send him back. He didn't want to stay the course. Right. He went back home. Yep. So when it came time to go on second missionary journey, Paul said no. Barnabas wanted to take Mark back, and he said, "Uh, uh-uh. uh, he didn't. He wasn't faithful. He didn't right. show himself faithful. I'm not taking him." Well, it caused such a division between Paul and Barnabas that they split, and Paul then chose Silas to go with him on the second missionary journey. But yet, when later, when Paul is in prison, who does he call for? Mark. Who wrote one of the books of our Bible? Mark. See, but Mark had to repent. And That's, get and get back right with God, and then he was useful again in ministry. Yeah. So just because you make a mistake doesn't mean that you can never be used of God again. That's true. You see, there's such that there's such power in that, Mike. Repentance and confession. Divorce is a nasty, awful, ugly thing. And and guys, it is hard to repent of that and and be open about what happened, especially in the ministry. It's embarrassing, and it's just, it leaves a stain. Yeah. But I'm of the belief that 
just because a man has been divorced, that doesn't mean that God is finished with him. You know, again, I believe in restor- uh, repentance and restoration. And that comes from discernment. And that comes through, like Mike, like you said, you know, a man, you may have to, you know, you may have to take some time to, to, to focus and, and be restored. You know, I, I keep uh, quoting uh, Hebrews chapter five. Um, I believe it's um, down here. Verse number 12. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as one have uh, need of milk and not strong meat. And it's almost like, you know, instead of you ministering, you got, you need to be ministered to, you need to go through yeah. spiritual rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. You may have to focus on yourself for a time being. And, and Mike, uh, I mean, I don't think that this is going to be the definitive end all discussion on um, marriage and ministry and the impact that divorce has. But boy, I tell you what, I don't think that just because a man is the husband of one wife, that that automatically qualifies him to be a pastor or a deacon. No, I believe that there are other qualifications that need to be considered. Sure. Absolutely. Just because a man has been divorced, does that necessarily disqualify him? I'm of the position that, no, that doesn't necessarily disqualify him. There may be grounds for divorce, as you said earlier, Mike. Um, there may have been a situation where he was divorced before coming to faith in Christ, you know? But we hear that term divorce, and like you said, that's the scarlet letter, and it follows people around, and um, and and it's like the, the plague, you know? I mean, you don't want, don't go near that person. But if God has forgiven them, if they're repentant, and, you know, I, I don't, again, somebody may critique me um, on, on this, but again, if enough time has passed, and we see that they have a shown themselves a pattern of good works and that they're not that same guy that they're still not chasing skirts or they're they're giving due diligence under their wife and i don't i don't even know the amount of time 5 years 10 years has passed 20 years and they're restored in their relationship and there's you know like this is something too like wouldn't it be sad if a man you know he, he's like you know, when I was divorced 25 years ago, but I've, I've since repented and I've, I've got a great family here and I love my wife and I've got children and I want to serve the Lord. Okay. Well, that's great. You know, to me, it's like, okay, well, you've been divorced. We need to look into your past, but, but everything's good here. I've, I've, I've repented and everything's good. You know, I would, I would want to I would want to talk to the person that he got divorced from and say, how is he treating you? Well, He's a scumbag. Every time he talks to me, he cusses me. And every time he this, or, you know, he's back on child support to me, that'll be like, he doesn't have a good report without, you know, he, he, mm-hmm. he, he hasn't been reconciled in, in different areas, you know, of, of his past. I would say, you know, first, as Jesus said, you know, go be reconciled with your brother, then bring your offering unto the Lord. But if, again, here's the thing, if, if God does something in somebody's heart, Darby, like you, my man, you know, I really feel like you're, you, you're all in for Jesus. Uh, am I right in saying uh, that? There's no doubt. And I'm sure that you've probably offended some people in the past. You know, I said, that's a very good assumption. <laughs> you know, some people, you've made some people mad and like, that's also a very good assumption. I, I believe that Darby, if somebody said, you know, Darby, you can't minister because of a grudge or because of an issue of a situation with this person, you would say, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go, Paul, I'm going to go make that right. I'm going to try to figure out how to make that right because so that God can be glorified and again, guys, if you take that in totality, when when we're seeking reconciliation and restoration and repentance in Christ, that's a very powerful thing. But it's it's a slippery slope, and it gets very 
uh, it's it's muddy, you know, because it gets personal and it gets sticky. But and that's why people just say, well, they've been divorced. We don't want to go there. Y'all with me? You know, because it's it's hard to unpack all that stuff. It's hard to deal with that. Micah, you, you've got something else you want to say, right? Well, I, I just think a lot of it is ignorance. I, I think we, yeah. we have developed these traditions because of a false understanding of God's word. And, and we're putting traditions above the word of God. And you know how Jesus felt about that. I mean, he tore, he tore the Pharisees <laughs> up about uh, putting traditions above the word of God. Okay. And we're doing the same thing. I, I think it's just ignorance. And, I mean, if, if you look at, if, if you take the, this um, husband of one wife to mean that, well, then it means you have to be married. So you can't be unmarried and be a, and be a bishop or a deacon. Well, Paul violates that criteria. Yep. Then you can't, you, if your wife dies, you can't remarry. Even though you have complete permission from God to remarry when your spouse dies, right? Mm-hmm. It would be your second wife. Mm. Yep. You would no longer be the husband of one wife. That's your second wife. So yeah. now you're going to spend the rest of your life single because you either have to stay single to stay in the ministry or or, or remarry and quit the ministry. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's ridiculous. Now, also you have to be chaste when you got when you got married. Because if you ever had sexual relations with anyone other than your wife, you got more than one wife guy. I'm, I hate to tell you this. I know nobody wants to hear this, but in the eyes of God, you've got more than one wife. Okay, if you were ever had sexual relations with anyone other than your wife, you've got more than one wife out there. But nobody wants to deal with that issue either. Again, that's what I mean. That's a slippery slope because you you start you start investigating people like that, and they're going to think, who you know, what business is it of you to be getting in in my business? You know, and it's like, oh man, that's tough. Usually, when you're that way, you've got some uh, stuff in the closet. Yeah, (laughs) but but the thing that bothers me the most. I guess it's just ignorance because in the Greek New Testament, there's three verbs used for divorce. Those verbs are afiemi, um, uh, apoluo, and um, corizo. Okay, um, and oh, sorry, four verbs and luo. So there's four verbs in the Greek New Testament used for the act of divorce. Okay, there's two nouns used. Uh, Lucis, uh, which uh, which means separation or divorce, and uh, op, uh, apostasion, which means uh, the bill of divorcement that Jesus talks about in, in Matthew 19. So you've got four verbs and two nouns to deal with this issue in the Greek New Testament. And Paul knew these words because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he's dealing with the topic of divorce, he uses apiami, he uses corizo, and he uses lucis. So he uses those words when he's talking about divorce. Mm-hmm. So Paul was a very educated man, okay, grew up sitting at the feet of, of, of Gamaliel. He was one of the brightest, smartest, educated religious people of his day. He knew the Greek language and he knew these words. But yet when he talks this this. When he talks about the qualifications for a bishop or a deacon, none of those words are ever used. He never uses one of the four verbs, nor does he use the two nouns Mm. when he's talking about divorce. Now, so if he was talking about divorce when he says the husband of one wife or literally is a one-woman man, why didn't he just use those words? If he meant that a man could, could not be divorced and be a bishop, why didn't he just say it? Right. He knew what the words were. Yeah. Yeah. He, he w- used them. He wouldn't have been out of context. No. In other words, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yes. But he chose not, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he did not use any of those words because he's not talking about divorce. He's talking about a man's relationship with his wife. How does he treat his wife? Is he faithful? Is he dedicated? Is he committed to that woman? Mm-hmm. Mm. That's what he's focused on. That's the standard. If he wanted to talk about divorce, he would have used the words. Yeah. Wow. But we take something that's not there and read into it. It's called eisegesis, inserting meaning into Scripture. And that is a bad thing. 
Mm. Our job is exegesis, extracting meaning from Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're never to put meaning into Scripture, yeah. but that's what people do. They're inserting their own meaning into Scripture. Amen. If Paul yeah. meant that a man couldn't be divorced, he would have said that. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, look, I don't want pastors of churches out chasing skirts. They need to be faithful, dedicated, and committed to their own wife. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Okay? That's the bottom line. That's the code of standard. That's what we should judge people on, okay? And if they violate that code, they need to be confronted. They need to be rebuked. They need to be given an opportunity to repent and be restored, okay? But that's the code. That's the ethic. But yet we apply this man-made ethic. Look, we do it for the same reason that they did in in John chapter 11. I'm sorry, chapter 8, John chapter 8. Remember what's happening in John chapter 8, first 11 verses of John chapter 8? They bring, the religious leaders bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus because they want him to have her stoned to death, right? Want her her dead, yeah. Right? And they're only doing that, they're not doing it to seek justice, because how do we know that? If they were truly seeking justice, the men they had slept with would be there also. Because the Bible says both of them are worthy to be stoned to death, right? But they only brought the woman. They didn't bring the men that they slept with because they were only trying to trick Jesus. They weren't trying to truly seek justice. And Jesus knew that. That's why he scribbled in the, in the dirt. And the Bible says they left the oldest, beginning beginning with the oldest down to the younger. Now, yeah. it would be interesting to talk about what he wrote in the, on, in the sand that day. But whatever it was, it convicted those people and the older people who had probably more sin in their life because they've lived longer, they were the first ones to leave down mm-hmm. to the youngest. You know, in most of the, the what's considered the best manuscripts, those verses aren't there. <laughs> They're not there. You know why? According to Augustine, uh, Dr. Vernon J.V. Gee writes in his commentary on, on John that Augustine wrote, that man took those 11 verses out because man thought it taught a wrong lesson. And it thought it taught people to, it encouraged people to commit adultery. So because they didn't think those verses taught the right lesson, they reached in and just took those 11 verses out and didn't include them in the manuscripts. Mm. Okay? Because it didn't meet their standard. It didn't live up to what they thought the Bible should say. Okay? That's sad. And I would argue that this doesn't promote adultery. No. But what it rather promotes is forgiveness. Yes. Yeah. And restoration. And restoration. And justice. Because yeah. Jesus is dealing with people that didn't really want justice. They just were trying to trick him and make him stumble. Now, granted, okay. I believe that there is a certain measure of accountability that needs to be put into place. And, you know, we in in the church, you know, everybody... Everybody wants to love Jesus, but they also want to live however they want to live, mm. and that's that's not biblical either. It's a free Mike. for all, really, you know. And and there's very few people that will allow themselves to be held accountable. There are very few people who will allow the pastor to hold people accountable in the church. Well, guess who also needs to be held accountable? The pastor. The pastor yes. who holds the pastor accountable. You know what I'm saying? The deacons, the the, the body itself, and. And if we're all open to accountability, it can work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It can work. But there will be mistakes made. Yeah. Yes. Are, are we in agreement? Same with Peter and Paul corrected him. When the correction is made, when a man is repentant, you know, the Bible says confess your faults one with another so that he may be healed. That's not talking about a physical healing, you know, where, you know, if you confess your faults and you won't have that shoulder injury anymore, <laughs> you know, you won't have them knee problems. No, it's talking about that spiritual healing, right? Yeah. That you'll be freed spiritually from that. Um, so well, that James chapter five verse 16, um, somewhere around in there. Uh, but you know, guys, I, I honestly believe that we could continue on. I mean, Mike, this is a this is a seminary course right here. <laughs> okay, that's been really good though. Very good. It's been good. I've enjoyed it. Super informative. And I believe we could probably keep going. We could do three episodes. Oh my really. gosh. <laughs> um but but um you know, definitely I'm gonna cut this into two parts here. Um 
but Darby, let's just we'll just kind of work our way across here. I'm th- this was your original question. How are you feeling about about what Mike and what you know the discourse that we've had here? You know, because what would you raise? Can I continue to minister if I've been divorced? And so, share your thoughts. Well, I, I think that um, I can definitely continue to minister. I I think that this is a lot of information, and I, I'm very excited about listening to it again to really be able to dive into it. Yeah, even more. This, this yeah. is one that, it's, even though I was here and I was listening to it, and I got to see the notes. I need to listen to it some more to really grasp. Uh, but man, this has been so good. It's been what you said, setting free. You yeah. know. I really, really, really have enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, you're welcome. Very, very, very welcome. I'm passionate about this because many, many men have been hurt because of this. We have some amazing men. In my church right now, we have, uh, I know of one man that worked harder in that church than anybody I know of. And he's there before anybody else. And lead, last guy, he, he, he cleans. I mean, he's just a worker. And they will not allow this man to serve as a deacon because he's been divorced. But yet he's been faithful to his wife for years, and he is a faithful servant. But because of a horrible misunderstanding of God's word, he's being prejudiced against, if that's the right word, okay? And and, and I think treated wrongly. And, and there's many men in many churches that are being treated that way because of this ignorance about what God's word truly says. Well, I think and, our churches have made it to where uh, divorce is done forgivable sin. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can be a murderer and we'll let you be a pastor. You you can be an ex-murderer. You can be an ex-rapist. Uh, uh, you could be a, an ex-drug dealer. Mm-hmm. But boy, if you had a divorce, you're out. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's just, it blows my mind the way we treat people. Like you said, there's a lack of grace, a lack of discernment. But okay, let me share something I hope will will encourage everybody here at the end. Y'all know who B.H. Carroll is? Y'all ever heard of him? No. B.H. Carroll is the founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Southwestern is the largest and most conservative seminary in the Southern Baptist system. We have six seminaries, right? And Southwestern is the largest and most conservative of those six. Okay. Now, B.H. Carroll um, was the pastor of First Baptist Church, Waco, Texas, for 28 years. Okay. He was also the president of trustees of Baylor University for 20 years. He was a trustee of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, for 18 years. He was the vice president of the General of the Baptist General Association of Texas for almost 15 years. Okay. He was a speaker at nearly every Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting for 30 years. And he was the founder of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, now, what you need to understand about this man is that he was divorced. Okay, he was divorced. He married his wife, uh, Carol. I mean, Carol married his first wife in December of 1861. Because of her infidelity, he was granted a divorce two years later. He was saved in 1865, and Dove Baptist Church confirmed his call to preach by ordaining him in 1866. He was called to be the pastor of New Hope Baptist Church in 1869. Two years later, First Baptist Church Waco called him to be their pastor, and he served there for 20-something years. Carol married his second wife in December of 1866 after he had been called to be the pastor of of Dove, uh, Dove Baptist Church. She died in 1897, and a few years later, Carol married his third wife. This was a man that is considered a hero of the Baptist faith. Okay? And yet, he was divorced. And married three times. And married three times. But yet, apparently, at least people in that time frame did not consider divorce as something that disqualified you from service and an inability to be used of God. Yeah, I think that with each, I think it's just something that has to be investigated. And again, there's got to be men of God to investigate with discernment and judgment and prayer. But I don't think that divorce is something that we go, okay, yeah, they're divorced and they're done. I think that's a dangerous precedent to set. 
And it's one that we're actually having to overcome right now in the modern day church. Mm-hmm. So Mike, thank you for sharing that. And by, by all means, if anybody listens to this and they're on the other side of the fence, uh, please reach out to us, talk to me. I mean, I'm easy to find and we would love to hear your thoughts on it. Okay. Uh, Paul, closing thoughts, my man. This is, uh, This subject probably has ripped more people apart than anything mm-hmm. uh, that we could even discuss. And at the end of the day, it all falls back to whether I'm married, whether I'm divorced, whatever I am, I'm still at the foot of the cross. Because married, divorced, I'm still in desperate need of a savior and he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up the wounded and, and he's our, our staff. He's our ever present help in a time of trouble. And I know this, that if we will seek his kingdom and who he is, all things will work together and all things will come together for who he is. I want to leave this because when, when you, uh, Mike touched on Peter and Paul and you said he went on to write first and second Peter, he, he starts off in First Peter, listen to what he says. Even though he had, he had been foolish, he had done stupid things, the Lord got him back on track. And he gives a list of things to do, and I won't go through that list. You need to check it out for yourself. Second Peter chapter 1, you need to check out that list. But at the end of the list, listen to what Peter says. He, he messed up and was foolish and got corrected and came back into line. He says, therefore, brothers, be more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Mm. Seek the Father, for if you do these things, Darby, you will not stumble. Absolutely. What an episode. Mike Nelson, thank you for being on here. Brother Darby, always glad to have you guys. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Anytime. Well, anytime. Well, definitely. Darby's all the time asking me questions. I'm not going to do a podcast. We yep. do a podcast on yep. that. Um, so, guys, thank you all for coming on board. If you like this show, be sure to check us out on uh, Facebook at Truth Revival 37385. For Mr. Nationwide, Paul Chapman, mm. I'm Roman Hamilton. We're out of here.